All right, everyone, settle down. Um, I'm going to start by telling you something about myself, because that's how I start conversations. Uh, I grew up in Savannah, Georgia. You may remember uh, Savannah from such films as Robert Zemeckis' 1994 classic Forrest Gump. Yeah, absolutely. Some, yes, yeah, Phantom, an American classic. Um, that's what I have told people outside of Georgia for most of my life to this day. In my travels around the world, here now in the Pacific Northwest, people ask, you get to talking, where are you from? Oh, I'm from Georgia. Where? Savannah, Georgia. Savannah. But it's not true. Um, truth be told, I grew up in a town called Guyton, Georgia. This is what I tell people when pressed in conversation. And they say, oh, Savannah, where's Savannah? I'm like, well, technically it's not Savannah, it's Guyton. Guyton is a small rural town about 30 miles away from Savannah, whose population in the late 80s and early 90s when I was there was around 700 total. Um, no one knew where or what Guyton was, so I just said Savannah. It's the next biggest, most recognizable city. But if we get right down to it, I'm actually from Guyton. That's not true either. Um, I actually grew up in a township of Guyton called Marlowe. Marlowe has no paved roads, no traffic lights. It had two businesses. Uh, here's one of them. <laughs> it's called Smitty's. It's still there, by the way. This is a fairly recent picture. Uh, my mom still buys boiled peanuts there and sends them to me in the mail. It's great. Uh, there was a service and repair shop next to my house, but it closed down before I was born, and it's still sitting there exactly like that, next door to where I grew up. And I was raised going to church in this world, and since I was having a blast on Google image search, here's that church. <laughs> my mom taught Sunday school and led women's ministry and sang in the choir. My dad was a deacon, and since we were Southern Baptists, he was also on about 15 different committees. And uh, <laughs> we used to tell jokes about ourselves like, how many Baptists does it take to change a light bulb? Change, you know. <laughs> wow. wow. <laughs> That's the funnier one. The less funny and more specific one was how many Southern Baptists does it take to change a light bulb? And then you say, oh, it takes at least a dozen because you need one to do the work while the others sit in the committee to discuss how good and important the old light bulb was and lament the scandal of abandoning the tradition and fret over the declining state of the church and, you know. <laughs> These were the very funny jokes that we told uh, to make light of really a serious situation. And I was in the middle of that losing my mind because I am wired to a fault, really, quite frankly, to get itchy at the mere suggestion of groupthink or enforced traditionalism, of everyone being made to do something just because that is the way it is done. So as a kid growing up in Georgia, my dad would tell me things, you know, like raise me in the way of Georgianess and say, son, you don't never have your hat on inside a building. And I would say, why? Who says? And who cares? And if we're not supposed to have a hat on in the building, I'll make sure to have this hat on every time that I'm inside. Um, <laughs> a pleasure to be around, really. And my... My high school flag, this is a true story, my high school flag was a Confederate flag, so on Spirit Day, I made a t-shirt 
of a Confederate flag burning, and it said, Heritage of Hatred. I made it with markers, um, and I wore it to our school's pep rally. No, <laughs> stop. This was, to be fair, this was some 20 years before virtue signaling was a thing, and no one was impressed with me whatsoever. So I did not do it for retweets or anything. In fact, I instigated a small race riot, and the local news showed up to cover it. <laughs> So, all that to say, you take that, that kind of personality in a severely traditional, hyper-fundamentalist paradigm and you get a combustible recipe. And this was both good and bad because, like Jesus, I had a kind of built-in aversion to tradition for tradition's sake. But, unlike Jesus, I had a strong disdain for even the idea of tradition. And finding the balance between those poles is a difficult thing, but that's exactly what Jesus expects his disciples to do. And regardless of your wiring, it can be a really difficult thing to do. So with that, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 15. Once again, uh, my name is Josh Porter. I used to work here before I planted a church called Van City, you know, just a, a little bit from here. Now I show up off and on to remind you guys, hey, you are in an ongoing series about the Gospel of Matthew. Did you realize that? Uh, and I'm here to pick up where we left off. So there's a lot of ground to cover. You guys up for it? Are you feeling all right? Ready. Great, thank you. Oh, wow, a clapping and everything? That's never happened. Matthew 15, verse 1 says, Then... Some Pharisees and teachers of the law came to Jesus from Jerusalem and asked, verse 2, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands before they eat. So go ahead and pause. This is actually a serious visit. The religious leaders, who are a big deal, come all the way from Jerusalem to seek out this Jesus of Nazareth character. And the language they use to question Jesus is actually pretty strong. One scholar translates their attack, why in the world are your disciples breaking the precious heritage of our ancestors? See, in the first century, devoted Jewish people practiced ritual hand-washing before eating, and it had nothing to do with germophobia or hygiene at all, but the concept of holiness. And the whole thing is about as far removed from our cultural context as you can get. So bear with me. And let's try and wrap our heads around this. In the story of the Bible, the whole world has been wrecked by the rebellion of both human beings and spiritual beings and what we call sin, which is a word that means to miss the mark of God's ideal and God's desire and God's heart. So God wants to fix things. He selects for himself a people that's later called Israel, and he tells them, hey, it'll be through you guys that I repair the world, set things to right, and communicate the goodness of how things should be to the rest of the world, not just one group, but to everyone. So then, a bit later, you get this weird book called Leviticus. And in it, Israel receives from God a set of guidelines for maintaining holiness. Now, when most of us hear holiness, we tend to think of upright morality. That's how it's used colloquially. Like, being holy means being really well-behaved. And morality is an aspect of holiness, but that's not the primary idea. The Bible describes God, for example, as holy because the word means unique or set apart. There's no one like God. He's different from everyone, different from everything. So he is holy or unique. But holiness also means dedicated to. So for Israel, becoming holy means sharing in the uniqueness of God as a gesture of dedication to God. So in Leviticus, you get something called purity laws. And the idea was that because God's presence 
burns away impurity, if an Israelite steps into the presence of God in a state of impurity, that could be dangerous for them. It's not sinful or wrong per se, but it could be dangerous. So there's all these laws about how to become pure if you come into contact with things that represent death, like diseased skin or dead bodies or even certain bodily fluids. And again, accidentally touching a skin disease or an animal carcass isn't sinful, but the idea is that an Israelite must learn to take the presence of God very seriously. So if they come into contact with something that was associated with death or an impure thing, they'd have to wait a few days or take a special kind of bath or offer a sacrifice, things like that, and then they would be pure again and they could go back into God's presence. Now, the practice of hand washing was developed later by the Pharisees, who were the respected religious leaders of Jesus' day, as an outward gesture of their love for the Hebrew Scriptures. So the idea was, we don't have to do this, but maybe we touch something impure without even knowing it. So by washing their hands before eating, they emulated a mini purity ritual as a way to say, listen, just in case, I take the Torah so seriously that I don't want anything to compromise my purity before God. So the hand washing was both a precaution and kind of a, a display or a message to onlookers that said, I take this very seriously, I love the Bible. Not every Jewish person honored the hand-washing tradition, nor were they expected to do so. But the Pharisees are calling Jesus and his apprentices to a higher standard, their standard. And sure, it's easy to dismiss this kind of thing as uh, a little more than a religious pretense, but there's a note of something admirable in it as well. Now, Jesus was a rabbi, he was a Bible teacher, he taught and kept Torah, he would have been in these ways very similar to the Pharisees. And for whatever reason, these guys know that Jesus' disciples do not uphold the Pharisaical tradition of handwashing. It seems as though Jesus himself does it, because he isn't mentioned as an offender in the story, only the disciples. So perturbed, the Pharisees ask, why don't you have your students wash their hands as well? And look at what happens. Verse 3, Jesus replied, and why do you break the command of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. But you say that if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father or mother is devoted to God, they are not to honor their father or mother with it. Thus, you nullify the word of God for the sake of your tradition." This is a weird answer from Jesus. So here's what's going on with all that. First, let's get this out of the way. When Jesus says word of God, he's not talking about the Bible. In fact, all throughout the scriptures, the term word of God rarely, if ever, means the Bible itself. Instead, the word of God typically just refers to something God has spoken, which may or may not be the Bible, depending on the context. Later, John calls Jesus himself the word. Today, Christians like to call the Bible the word, which kind of is and isn't accurate, but I digress. Either way, Jesus is about to talk about the Bible, even if he didn't mean it when he mentioned the word, at least not the way modern Christians tend to say it as an exclusive proper noun. Now, the fifth or of the Ten Commandments is the requirement to honor one's mother and father, but the four commandments that precede it all have to do with honoring Yahweh. Because of this, and not just that, the very clear line throughout the Bible that commitment to God must surpass all other allegiances, because of those things, the Pharisaical tradition had developed an oath called Corban. 
And the idea was basically that one could say to their parents, Corbin, and that meant dedicated to the Lord. And this meant that from then on out, anything that the son or daughter owed their parents would be vowed to God instead. Now, an oath like that could be made as a gesture of dedication to God. Everything I have is going to God. Or it could be made as a way to screw over your parents. Like if you get really upset with them or if you want to somehow cut them out, you could say this and be bound to the oaths. And and since that was bound to happen, a rabbinic forum determined that once the vow was made, it could not be retracted. So if one's parents were in the kind of need, financial or otherwise, that their own children could meet, the vow, even if it was made like in a a moment of... um, poor thinking, the vow rendered both the parents and the children helpless to do anything about it. There's even a recorded case I found of this in which a man who had made the vow and excluded his father had to resort to giving his courtyard away to a friend just so his dad could attend his grandson's wedding so that it wouldn't break the vow. So all that to say it was a ruthlessly upheld tradition and people were paying the price as a result. And Jesus is ticked about it. He's provoked to outrage by the Pharisees. They come to him, the nerve, indignant in a tizzy over this whole hand-washing thing, and Jesus turns the argument in on them. And it's not just because Jesus is skilled in the art of debate. Clearly he is, but it's because Jesus was the most brilliant teacher who ever lived. He wields the moment as an instrument for maximum teaching impact. This is about tradition versus the scriptures. Now, Jesus has a ridiculously high view of the scriptures. If you think back to Jesus' kingdom manifesto, what we call the Sermon on the Mount, the whole thing kicks off with Jesus' thoughts on the Bible. He claims that he hasn't come to abolish the Old Testament, but to fulfill it. Jesus doesn't throw out the Hebrew scriptures. He draws our attention to the heart of God behind Israel's history of things like laws and regulations. So for example, the law says don't kill people, which is good advice, but that's not enough. To truly live at peace with one another, you have to reject not just murder, but anger in your heart as well. You have to learn to forgive one another and repair relationships and abolish anger and embody nonviolence. So the same spirit is at work here in Jesus' critique of the religious leaders. What good is it to honor the letter of the law, the letter of the tradition, even if it seems admirable, if you fail to truly love God and other people in the process? Now, of course, if you push this too far and you define what it means to love God and other people, it starts to break down, but we'll talk more about that in just a bit. Here, Jesus is asking, what good is an oath of total dedication to God that victimizes people in need? So he goes off on them. Look down at verse 7. Here comes the name calling. You hypocrites. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. And then he quotes the prophet. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. That word hypocrites can be translated phonies. Literally, it means actors, someone who pretends to be someone they are not. And here, Jesus is using it very much as an insult. He says, you phonies, you fakes. And here, scholars argue that Jesus' accusation against the Pharisees, it actually has less to do with their behavior itself than it does with their faulty interpretation of the scriptures and how that affects their living, meaning he's upset that they claim to follow the scriptures and aren't even doing that. And watch how he turns this argument into a teaching moment. Verse 10, if it wasn't embarrassing enough that he's calling these guys names, he calls the crowd to him and says, listen and understand. Verse 11, what goes into someone's mouth does not defile them, but what comes out of their mouth, that is what defiles them. 
So Jesus announces that the hand-washing tradition is ultimately unimportant because true defilement originates elsewhere. Now try and imagine this. Whether you're the religious leaders in this story or if you were the Jewish crowd standing by, you know good and well that the thoroughly developed tradition handed down by generations of Israel taught strict dietary laws. And the language was, shall we say, explicit. Look at this one example. Every creature that moves along the ground is to be regarded as unclean. It is not to be eaten. You are not to eat any creature that moves along the ground, whether it moves on its belly or walks on all fours or on many feet. Gross. It is unclean. Do not defile yourselves by any of these creatures. Do not make yourselves unclean by means of them or be made unclean by them. I am Yahweh God. Consecrate yourselves. Be holy because I'm holy. Do not make yourselves unclean by any creature that moves along the ground. I am Yahweh who brought you out of Egypt to be your God. Therefore, be holy because I am holy. Now, ancient Hebrew doesn't have italics or underlining or capital letters. So if you want to emphasize something, you repeat it apparently many times. And there are, it's not just the guys crawling on the ground with lots of legs, which seems self-explanatory to me, but there are all sorts of unclean animals in the Torah. There's pigs, rabbits, and shellfish, and bats, and camels, and chameleons, and eagles, and ferrets, and frogs. Don't eat them. And this is written into Israel's history all the way back to Moses. They've known about this for centuries. And, and then in a single moment, Jesus turns to a crowd and says, listen, what goes into someone's mouth does not defile them. What comes out of their mouth, that's what defiles them. So I imagine this crowd, who all would know the Torah and the law and the history really well, would say, what the heck you say, Rabbi? <laughs> now, a bit about our place in all this. The gospel authors understand this moment as the decisive moment in ending the dietary laws of Leviticus. Mark says so point blank. He says, in saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. And that begs the question, can Jesus do that? <laughs> just veto Leviticus 11? And they weren't even talking about it. They were talking, you know, like they came to him about something else. Well, to understand what's happening here, you have to do kind of like a rapid fire tour of the Bible's meta narrative, and then what I hope will be a helpful analogy in tow. So remember the Bible's a story about, like I said earlier, God's work rescuing humanity and creation itself from the destruction of sin and evil. So to do that, God desires a people who will live a beautifully unique way that will reflect God to the world and bring all of humanity into the gracious reign of God's good kingdom. But if you know the story, the people God picks, Abram and his ancestors, Israel, not unlike the very first people, Adam and Eve, they mostly say, no thanks to God's rule most of the time. So God essentially says, look, Look, if you won't live within my beautiful vision that I've kind of set right before you, let me spell it out for you. And then in Exodus, Israel is given the law. Now understand, the law itself is not the vision. It is a means of directing Israel back to the vision. Think of, think of it this way. Both of my kids love to play outside. They prefer it, given the choice and weather permitting. They will always favor the outdoors. And since they are small children, they wander into the road from time to time. So though outside is good, it comes with a certain set of necessary safety precautions. Now imagine I permit my kids an open license to enjoy the outdoors with only some verbal instructions as to how one avoids death in the process. You know, is car bad? Stay right here. Other than that, you're good. But then, predictably, one of them wanders right into the road, which is something they do. This is a true story, by the way. Immediately follows the institution of more specific parameters. You must play within this area of the front yard only. 
But even with guidelines established, they wander beyond the yard, and now we head for a small, decidedly less fun, fenced-in area of the backyard. Now, I wanted my kids to be able to enjoy the outdoors, but the version we're left with is not what I had in mind, not what they had in mind. The Torah is kind of like that fenced-in area in the backyard. And Jesus is saying, listen, I'm not saying I want to destroy the fenced-in area, but what I am saying is that we can do even better. That wasn't the point in the beginning, and here's how. And then you get the teachings of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. So, no, we don't obey Levitical law as disciples of Jesus, but not because Jesus abolished Levitical law because it was inherently bad, but because he is leading us back to the heart behind God's original vision for human flourishing. So when we read it today, the Torah and Levitical law, some of the law sounds really weird, and it looks more like God entering into Israel's brokenness in their time and their place to establish restrictions and boundaries, and we're like, what the heck is this all about? Other parts of the law, quite, quite frankly, look much like the familiar heart of God you see throughout the whole Bible, still makes perfect sense right here, right now. But we don't get to decide which is which. We use the rest of the Bible, and in particular, the teachings of Jesus, which some scholars actually call the canon within the canon of the Bible's authoritative teachings, to interpret what the Bible says, meaning we don't get to sort through the Hebrew Scriptures and say, I like this bit, but this bit not so much. We use the entirety of Scripture to build out a robust paradigm for life in what Jesus called the kingdom of God. Now, about what Jesus is saying here for us tonight We've already learned back in chapter 12 the tremendous, you remember, you remember that, chapter 12, like it was yesterday, the tremendous urgency that Jesus places on controlling the tongue. He, here, I'll, I'll show you. He said this. He says, I tell you that everyone will have to give account on the day of judgment, listen to this, for every empty word they have spoken, for by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. To which I say, yikes. That sounds awful. So <laughs> Jesus is knowingly revealing the heart of Scripture that what you do and what you say in particular in this story can be way more toxic than what you eat. And you and I hear something like that and we go, well, sure, that makes perfect sense. But understand, none of that would have made what Jesus said at that time any less shocking or derisive. So look what happens next. Verse 12. Then the disciples came to him and asked, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this? And he replied, every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be pulled up by the roots. Leave them. They are blind guides. If the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. So think about this. One can actually kind of sympathize with the offense of the Pharisees in this story. With one incendiary statement, Jesus has blown a hole in the Pharisees' precious interpretation of the Scripture and in their arguably even more precious heritage of tradition. So it seems like the disciples are kind of like, yikes, dude, that was intense. Should you, I don't know, try to clarify to them or make amends with them? These guys are really offended. And Jesus refuses to back down. He doubles down on his critique of the Pharisees, which is another fascinating reveal in the personality of Jesus, who is often sensitive and compassionate and gentle, even with people who are caught doing evil. Think of the woman caught in adultery or the woman at the well with lots of husbands and boyfriends or Matthew, the tax collector, who worked for the oppressor and Jesus treats as a friend. 
And elsewhere, Jesus is even sensitive with the Pharisees. If you know the story of Peter asking Jesus about paying the temple tax, which is in chapter 17, so you get there in like five years or whatever, you'll be in that building a long time before you get to chapter 17. Um, Jesus acknowledges in that story that he doesn't have to pay the temple tax, but he says to Peter, and I quote, but so that we may not cause offense. And then he pays it anyway. So sometimes he's like that, but elsewhere, like right here, Jesus deliberately generates controversy and he wields it as a teaching tool. He says and does things designed to provoke his audience. Sometimes he explains himself and a lot of times he doesn't. One older theologian I read this week called Jesus the rock of offense, saying that, and I quote, Christ would have to be buried if we wanted to satisfy the stubbornness of everybody, meaning you cannot possibly create a universally inoffensive Jesus. And this is so pressing for us in a moment of cultural hypersensitivity, because you and I are being infantilized, taught new modes of fragility on a daily basis, bombarded with a hostile groupthink that wants desperately to seek out new ways of being offended and outraged by anything and everything that does not conform to the herd mentality. There are only right and wrong sides, us and them, and any slip of the tongue or mistake or loose word, and we will throw you over the wall that separates the enlightened from the detestable forever. And on the other side of that wall are the trolls, the angry, embittered, backward-thinking mob who enjoy nothing more than frustrating the people on the other side of the wall. And yet again, as always, Jesus operates on neither side. Instead, he embodies a frustrating center of his own design. Jesus is neither afraid of controversy or offending people, and nor does he depend on doing either thing. He is sensitive and gentle, and he is outrageously offensive both in equal measure, depending on a given audience and a given situation. So he tells the disciples, listen, every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be pulled up by the roots. Leave them their blind guides. This is a stark and simple word on judgment, which is a concept unappealing to the modern sensibility, to say the least, but something that Jesus addresses all the time. Jesus is hearkening back to his own word imagery of seeds, saying that everyone not rooted in the kingdom of God will be pulled up or, frankly, will be judged. So the disciples are like, dang, this is intense, and they probe further. Let's keep reading. Verse 15, Peter, one of Jesus' close friends, said, explain the parable to us. Are you still so dull? Jesus asked them. Don't you see that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and then out of the body? But the things that come out of a person's mouth come from the heart, and these defile them. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. These are what defile a person. But eating with unwashed hands does not defile them. So Jesus seems a bit exasperated here. And he explains himself anyway. There's actually kind of a crass note to his explanation. When Jesus mentions whatever goes into the body and out of the body, he's conjuring up an image of human excrement. And then he turns the image around and says, but the true excrement is what flows up from the heart and comes out of the mouth. Murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. The excrement of the heart's sewer. You see the intensity 
in Jesus' name, and the grossness, frankly. One commentator wrote, the filth of the human toilet is not so great as that of the human heart not yet cleansed. And again, particularly pressing for us in an ideological culture of do what makes you happy. In our culture, the feelings of the individual are at the apex of human consideration. Follow your heart. And here you have Jesus saying, the human heart is overflowing with sewage. You don't need to eat something to be corrupt. Just look inside. <laughs> it's like the, uh, the reverse of Dumbo's magic feather. Hey, you don't need the magic feather. The magic was inside you all along. Only here, instead of magic, it's sewage. <laughs> and Jesus is saying, you don't need to eat something to be corrupted. You already are. <laughs> and there's a point. <laughs> Jesus is saying that eating all the right foods, abstaining from all the wrong foods, following all the right traditions to the letter of the law will not in and of themselves renovate the human heart. True, lasting kingdom change comes from reordering the heart, not the diet. And really, that Jesus would go off like this is hardly unprovoked. If you think about his work up until now, the guy has been constantly violating purity laws. He touched a man with a skin disease. He went into a territory filled with pigs and pagans. He was touched by a woman who was menstruating. He touched a dead body. He spoke with Gentiles. He hung out with sinners almost constantly, constantly breaking the purity laws of Leviticus. And in each of those recorded instances, rather than the impurity of these people and things transferring to Jesus, the purity of Jesus transfers to them which is summed up here in Jesus' warning. True purity of the heart must come through Jesus, not through strict adherence to purity legislation. And I want to land on this uh, before we end, and it's the question of two modern problems with this text, which is the lingering problem of tradition and the lingering problem of the Bible, which is where we begin. So let's start with tradition. Now, a few of us are still dragging around the lingering consequences of traditionalism. Maybe you think you're not really affected by the fundamentalism of your upbringing, if that was your story, but you are, whether you realize it or not. If you grew up against a fundamentalist backdrop, if you were raised by a hyper-conservative family, if you come from a closed-off us-versus-them denomination or context, you have been affected by that. And I'm honestly shocked at how often I talk to friends from different stories and backgrounds and contexts that have such similar stories. Uh, and my Russian friends in particular, their stories are nearly identical to my stories of being raised in the Deep South. Different details, of course, but near identical premises. Because when you spend significant time within a camp with clearly defined borders, even if the camp is in many ways fine or good, whether it's Southern Baptist or the Reformed tradition or a Calvary Chapel or even a specific family unit, whatever it might be, it is very rare to be unaffected by such an experience, even if you don't realize you have been. For some, it's a lingering aversion to change or a hypersensitivity or even fear of all things new. Everything is guilty until proven innocent if it doesn't fit a preconceived notion of your tradition. A while back, I was teaching here at Bridgetown, and when, I, <laughs> when I'd finished my sermon, I stepped off stage and was immediately confronted by a young man. Uh, he told me he was visiting, so hopefully he's not around. Uh, yeah. <laughs> if you are, enjoy the story about you. Um, <laughs> I stepped off stage, a young man confronted me, and he told me that his entire family stood up and left the building at the mere sight of me, which I thought, dang, that's a new one, that's real bad. 
It's the worst one I've ever got. I didn't even say anything, and they, these people were out of the door. And then he said it was, of all things, tattoos, which I thought, that seems odd, because tattoos are beyond mundane now. It's more unique not to have tattoos. Oops. Um, but this young man asked, he said, like, man, could you have at least worn gloves to cover them up? And I, I countered with a profound pastoral challenge. I said, how in the world would gloves not be more distracting? You see a guy get on stage with gloves? I'd be like, I don't trust anything this person said. They're like a villain. That's obviously an extreme example. But you, you'd be surprised at how often I witness people prickle at change, even, with, uh, even amongst people who imagine themselves open-minded and with it, but have a kind of built-in trepidation when anything seems outside of their ordinary. And sometimes it's with good cause. Not every new development is a good one. And certainly no new development should be accepted sight unseen without being weighed against the teachings of Jesus, the authority of the Scriptures, community of God's people, the leading of the Holy Spirit. But that intense wall that can go up in our minds might be a sign of something dangerous. Preston Sprinkle puts it this way. He says, conservative fundamentalism is the inability to humbly listen to the other side, the other tribe, those you are told are the enemy, the posture of seeing the world in black and white, good people and bad people, and refusing to love your enemy. Progressive fundamentalism, see above, they are the exact same thing. Portland is a place known for the latter much more so than the former. Now, our concern for our own camp, our tradition, our side, our way of doing things can become blinders that impede us from the actual work of the kingdom. But all that said, I venture a guess that many of you struggle less with tradition as you do with your aversion to it. And here comes the deep water. This is a problem because if you follow Jesus, you belong to a tradition, and that tradition is informed by the Bible. It seems like I'm constantly having conversations with people who would very much like to loosen their grip on the Bible and relent and be carried away by the warm and unthinking current of progressive quasi-spiritualism. So they tell me things like, I just don't feel like this could be true, or I just don't feel like God would ask this of me, or whatever it might be, and I'm answering, be that as it may, here are the scriptures, and yes, we approach them thoughtfully with nuance and carefully and work and study, but here they are. What are we going to do about them? Are you building out a discipleship that can submit to the authority of Jesus when everything around you claws and clamors at your dangling heels wanting to pull you in? One scholar writes of tonight's passage, Worship is useless, Isaiah and Jesus remind us, when the worshiping community derives its teaching from its own best opinions rather than from God's better word. In 1989, a report was published chronicling the results of an ongoing conversation between Southern Baptists and Catholics. I read the whole thing. It was really weird. And one journalist wrote of the findings... <laughs> The report notes that Baptists, while valuing past tradition and understanding the Bible, say tradition must be tested by Scripture, while Catholics say interpretation of Scripture must be measured by tradition. But I would argue that there's an element of truth in both things. For those of us interested in the Bible at all, conversations surrounding the Bible, the Scriptures and how we understand them, 
are typically divided into two broad camps. So on the left, you have the theologically liberal, which is not the same thing as politically liberal, but theologically liberal or progressive, if you like, which celebrates the Bible maybe as a work of uh, literature with some neat stuff in, but it is not authoritative scripture. For them, the Bible is indeed a library of writings, but a very human one and little more than that. And perhaps these human authors did enjoy some kind of spiritual encounter with God or the divine or whatever, whatever that is. And maybe they wrote something down about it, but God himself had little, if anything, to do with the writing of the Bible. And that view isn't new. It, it has its origins in Europe several centuries ago, Germany in particular, and it eventually spread to America. It killed off entire denominations in the process. And it is alive and well here today. Deconstruction is what we often call it now. It's all the rage, very hip, very marketable. It sells books. It generates podcast revenues. It sounds oh so intellectual, so enlightened. Never mind the rich history of 2,000 plus years worth of doctors and philosophers and astronomers and scientists and physicists and mathematicians and historians and theologians who followed the historic orthodox way of Jesus, it's nearly 2020 and we've moved on. Who needs Galileo and C.S. Lewis and Mother Teresa and Martin Luther King Jr. or N.T. Wright when you've got Girl, Wash Your Face and the liturgists? <laughs> and I mean, sure, some of these historic figures they faced down the evils of the world head on. They cared for the sick and the oppressed, and they never abandoned the historic Jesus tradition. They dedicated their lives to studying and learning, decades upon decades given to loving God with the mind for the sake of future generations of the church, and continued to live under the unapologetic lordship of Jesus. Sure, but these guys have a podcast. <laughs> Who needs PhDs and decades of faithful discipleship and pastoral experience around the world when you have Twitter? Now, of course, uh, the obvious critique of this position that I don't like, if you haven't noticed, is that when we ourselves become the authorities over the Bible, when we pick and choose what to believe and how ourselves, chances are the resultant Jesus is essentially a little more than imagine an imaginary figure of your own design. And you can tell because he likes everything you like. He's irked by what irks you. He never asks you to change anything about your lifestyle or shopping habits or sexuality. He never bothers you at all. It's convenient and very comfortable. But rest assured, Jesus should make you uncomfortable from time to time. The actual Jesus, given enough time, will bother you from time to time. A guy whose invitation to apprenticeship was come and die and follow me should make you, at times, uncomfortable. <laughs> now, the other camp over here on the right is an entirely different problem, but often just as vexing. It's something called biblicism or the idolatry of the Bible. And here the Bible is understood completely as authoritative scripture with absolutely no regard whatsoever for the Bible as a work of literature. And consequently, the Bible becomes something like a, a Mormon artifact that fell from heaven on golden tablets. But all of us, all of us enter into the process of interpretation when we read the Bible. Most of us aren't fluent in ancient Greek or Hebrew, so we rely on other people to translate the very words of the text before we even get to them. And then when we do get to them, we bring lenses with us, our own culture and context and upbringing and story and background. 
and our own personal bents and aversions and all those things, then this view of the Bible as itself divine eliminates the human side of things. And that's a problem because the Bible was written by human authors. And though the churches, don't get me wrong, always held that those authors were inspired by God's Spirit, so God is also the author, the church has never held that the Spirit put them into a trance and puppeteered them as they wrote and eliminated their personalities and idiosyncrasies as they did it. Instead, the personalities and the cultures and the context and the moods and even the quirks and agendas of the human authors are all left intact right there on the page. And that becomes a tremendous complication when one attempts to read the Bible as an entirely literal, linear, one-size-fits-all manual for life in the modern world or a science textbook. So submission for either side, whether the left or the right or somewhere in between, submission, though it drags like a, a serrated blade against the fragile grain of the world in which you and I live, submission means stooping to tuck your own desires and inclinations beneath the greater desires and inclinations of the one whom we serve. And no, that does not mean mindless, unquestioning, blind faith and service. Read the Bible. God welcomes doubt. He welcomes frustration and questions, wrestling with God himself for answers and clarity and greater faith. And then he asks for submission. And as much as it stands to challenge or even disrupt our comfort, Jesus not only affirms but celebrates and reinforces the authority of the Scriptures. And not just in this story, many times over in a great many ways. But Jesus does not affirm or celebrate or reinforce an unsophisticated, bare-bones, black-and-white letter-of-the-law reading of the text that the religious leaders of his day taught, as do many conservative Christians today. But either way, the thing is, if you want to apprentice Jesus, the Bible comes with him. On this, the whole of church history are in agreement. Andrew Wilson put it this way, our trust in the Bible stems from our trust in Jesus Christ. I don't trust in Jesus because I trust the Bible. I trust the Bible because I trust in Jesus. I love him and I've decided to follow him. So if he talks and acts as if the Bible is trustworthy, authoritative, good, helpful, and powerful, I will too. Even if some of my questions remain unanswered, or my answers remain unpopular. So my pragmatic plea is a simple one. If you do indeed apprentice this rabbi known as Jesus of Nazareth, then in keeping with his very strongly worded commands, read, know, value, and submit to the scriptures. Read them every single day, the gospels in particular, Read in short bursts or in long stretches. Read not just to read, but to learn and wrestle and question and unpack and probe and investigate while also submitting to the Scripture's authority upon the teachings of Jesus. I love the way J.I. Packer says that we should approach the Bible. He says, we are to read the Bible with an advanced commitment to receive as truth from God all that Scripture is found on inspection actually to teach. The left often neglects the first half, an advanced commitment to receive as truth from God, and the right neglects the second half, to inspect it, to find out what it actually teaches. All of this hard work 
is balanced by the Spirit of God alive in us. In John's Gospel, Jesus promises that when He, the Spirit of truth, comes, He will guide you into all truth. God Himself will help you. And it doesn't end there. You have the community of God's people to wrestle through the Scriptures with, to talk them out and figure out what it really means and how to actually submit to them. What does it mean to submit to the authority of Scriptures in a place like Portland in the here and now with a community of people learning to follow Jesus well? May we become a people who, like Jesus, learn to embody a complicated center, not just reluctantly and not just because we think we have to, but learn to embody it as a disposition who become unafraid of controversy or offense, who submit to the authority of the Scriptures while rejecting blind traditionalism for the sake of tradition itself. May we be informed inspired and compelled by our teacher and king, empowered by his spirit in the community of God's people and informed by this library of writings that he took so seriously. May we center ourselves on the greatest command of all to love God and to love one another and may we learn to do exactly that with all of its wonderful complexity and beauty and controversy, just like our rabbi and king, Jesus. Thanks for listening to the Bridgetown Church Podcast. As many of you know, we're nearing the end of a year-long capital campaign to raise money for and buy this beautiful historic church building right on the inner east side of the urban core of Portland, Oregon. We can't wait. We're in the remodel project right now. Hope to move in in March of 2020. But right now, we're just raising money as a church to pay for this beautiful space. If you're a podcast listener, a follower from another church, another city, and anything else, all moves in your heart and you would like to give back and contribute toward our church and this project over and above whatever you give to your local church, which we're all for. If you have any questions or thoughts, just visit bridgetown.church give or shoot us an email for more information. Grace and peace.